This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What a fantastic Sunday morning we've got out there. I know, and it's uh, perfect weather it's for perfect barbecue weather day. For barbecue day, which is fantastic because mm. in the past there has been the odd uh, rainy day that has caused a change in date. I've already directed a few people um, across the road to Ceres Park, so everyone's heading down there already to get a prime position. Yeah, nice. Dr. Ailey, good, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are we going? Good to see so many people from... Uh, uh, your neck of the woods in the studio today. We have a guest yeah, from your I very know. department. Exactly. It's It'll great to see. We're Absolutely. talking we earth like, sciences. We are. Well, earth sciences, you know, it's people like area. to talk about it. It's great. People love rocks. Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> they're, quite, they're quite nerdy about them, actually, in my department. It's, yeah. it's quite scary sometimes, you know, to yeah. see how excited they get about rocks. I took my son to the museum yesterday, and, you know, he, he's right into the bug section. Oh, yeah. And I virtually had to drag him into the geology section because as, as long, very long-term listeners of the show will note, I used to give the museum a lot of shit at having a really small rock collection. And now it's... Ma- <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. It's magnificent. No, it's but huge. there was a time when it was very, very small and it wasn't good and they had so much in storage that they didn't show. And now mm. it's just spectacular. It's mm. really yeah. great. So he um, yeah, dragged him in kicking and screaming. Did he enjoy it, though? Yeah, he got into it. Excellent. Yeah, some good stuff. Just Dr. Ray? Rocky on the way there. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's <laughs> oh, a bit early for that. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and Happy New Year. I, I missed oh, yeah. my... Uh, this is the first time back this year for me. Yes, I know, you know, I feel like I'm catching up, but all excited to talk about science. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, we're going to do some news. We've got three guests today, folks. We've got uh, quite a variety of things. We've got rocks, we've got cane toads, and we've got cancer. Not all in the same guest, though. Uh, three different guests. But we're going to start with some news. Dr. Crystal, what have you got for us? This week, I was so excited to read a new research paper that came out of the journal Science from a bunch of chemists who have expanded the DNA code. Expanded it. Yes. So DNA, building blocks of life, everything, you know, codes for all life on Earth, you know, uses four chemical building blocks that we all know, A, T, G, and C. And the entire sequence of every living creature's, you know, DNA on Earth is made up of A's, G's, T's, and C's, and they all bind to each other and make these beautiful double helixes, and that is life as we know it. Okay. Until but- <laughs> this week, where some um, chemists led by uh, Stephen Brenner actually sat down and sort of sketched out and said well what could what other molecules and molecular shapes might actually fit in that double helix and what other nucleic acids might we actually be able to start to embed into dna and they've actually come up with four new synthetic uh nucleic acids that fit and 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 pair into dna so as well as g's binding to c's a's binding to t's we now have an s that binds to a b and a p that binds to a z so we now have eight building blocks of dna and so i mean because when you think about it dna is just a molecule you know it's just a big molecule that's essential for life so what happens when we start to make other chemical substitutions in there and they've come up with these four new um new new coding uh pairs and essentially doubled um the building blocks we can make dna out of and you know they had to go through a lot of different trial and error to be able to make sure that this would work so that mm. none of the um none of them bind to each other incorrectly that they're very f- they're very faithful in their pairing so s only binds to b just in the same way that g's only bind to c's um and that they they um that it fits into the double helix and that this dna double helix that's made up of all eight um in different pair in those pairing combinations actually holds its shape and, and aligns you know in the same shape and form and thermodynamics and it's all you know preserved in terms of the shape and structure of dna and most importantly one of the jobs of dna is that dna you know that sits in your nucleus is actually um 
is actually um, uh, transcribed into RNA. And so RNA is like the messenger of DNA. And so they wanted to make sure that, th- that this could also be done. And so they, they found a, um, an enzyme that is normally responsible for transcribing DNA to RNA. They tinkered the enzyme a little bit so it would recognise these new uh, nucleic acids. And sure enough, they, um, because of the way in which the, the shape of the DNA was, was um, preserved, that these enzymes then could come in and actually recognise those, um, those DNA um, elements and then transcribe them into RNA elements. And so Essentially, we've now been able to go through and say, well, we've expanded the the, uh, the building blocks of life. And, and why is this important, you might say? Well... Aliens with acid for blood? Well, <laughs> the thing is, is that it does... That'd be cool. Is, is that our concept of life has been limited to these four, to looking for these four things. But now we know that, you know, those structures could actually be made of other chemical mm. entities, so tick. The other thing is it then, you know, opens up a whole new world for synthetic biology. If we are going to start making synthetic um, organisms or synthetic DNA structures, we've now got a way of tagging them so that they can actually be identified away from natural occurring elements. And so you say, yep. You can also start to make different molecular probes that um, can be used in diagnostics, and they've actually already done a little bit of work along that line with some of the SB pairings Um, and you can also start to think about how this could also be used um, for DNA information storage Mm. so we know that DNA you know as a a way of coding and storing you know information about life is actually being translated into how we store information about pictures and videos using the DNA code we've actually essentially now doubled the storage capacity because we've doubled the amount of building blocks available Mm. so there are lots of potential applications for this but I just think in terms of the chemistry it's just super exciting that we've been able to make some nucleic acids that actually form functional DNA. Yeah, it also opens up the the idea that if you're looking for other types of life in various locations on Earth or, or elsewhere, you need to look a bit more broadly because it's possible. It is yeah. possible yeah. that you could have completely um, completely uh, synthetic or, or non uh, DNA that's not based on on the building blocks that we're all made of here on Earth. Yeah, cool so stuff. it's a so it's a very cool paper that published in Science, and it's a tool. And I'm sure that over the next few decades, we will then see how this tool is then used in uh, in research. Yeah, see, I remember all the parts from the film named Gattaca. Now I'm yeah, going right. to have to remember some other stuff. Yeah, it bothers no, me. There's no vowel there, so we're a bit stuck. It's, <laughs> it's uh, suburbitous. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, that didn't roll off the no, tongue. No, no, it's not quite Gattaca friendly, oh, well. is it? I'll, I'll work it out. Dr. Ailey, what do you got for us? Well, I have a fantastic story about the Earth's atmosphere, actually. So I've got a question for all of you here. How big do you think the Earth's atmosphere actually is? Like, how far does it extend from the Earth's surface? Uh, about 150 kilometres. 150 kilometres. Guess again. Hmm. Bigger or smaller? Much bigger. Oh, really? Much bigger. Holy well, crap. it depends how we, we kind of think of the, yeah. what the atmosphere is, right? Mm. Well, and, and you've got different layers, right? Absolutely. Right. So you've got, you've, you've got your troposphere right at the Earth's surface. Stratosphere. And, stratosphere, and you go up and up and up to this thing called the exosphere, right? Oh, we're counting the exosphere. We, we are counting the exosphere. Uh, that yeah. So now the different. exosphere is basically... It, what we're defining the atmosphere here is, you know, anything that's not the complete vacuum of space, right? right? So, so a molecule every five minutes if, right. you, if you're travelling exactly. at 24,000 exactly. miles per hour. <laughs> exactly. But interestingly, um, scientists thought for a very, very, very long time that this, this um, you know, atmosphere around Earth was basically uh, around 200,000 kilometres, right? Right. So within the confines of the the moon's orbit, so the moon is on the outside of that, right? Um, So now in this type of the atmosphere, it's it's really not very dense at all, right? It's basically just hydrogen atoms. They really, like you say, there's one every five minutes. (laughs) You're travelling and you bump into one every five minutes. Isn't that equivalent of like smelling something when it's really far away? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But interestingly, this new 
research out of the uh, Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, or SOHO, which is a, a joint project between the yeah. European State Space Agency and NASA, has just found that the atmosphere or the, the hydrogen atoms that are still, you know, within Earth's grasp, I suppose, actually extend over 600,000 kilometres from wow. the Earth's surface. Well, so beyond past, the moon, because they have moon. That's the right. Moon? Exactly. So the, the moon's about 384. Yeah, 384. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's about one and a half times beyond... Uh, what the moon is. And not only that, it's not spherical. Because of the different pressures of the, the radiative pressures of the sun, mm. basically acts as exerts a force. So it's almost like the Earth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It basically has a little kind of comet tail almost mm. um, in the Earth's atmosphere. Now, the interesting part about this story that I really, really liked was we've actually known about this for 20 years, but we didn't know because this was done by the SOHO satellite that sits between the Earth and the Sun, and the data was recorded back in 1996 wow. to 1998, and it has been sitting in an archive waiting for someone to look at it <laughs> for that long, and it's only recently that somebody has been able to look at these specific data. That's very cool. And actually analyse this and had a look. And, I mean, look, the implications for... For, for the atmosphere and stuff aren't that big. Like you say, a, a molecule every five minutes, it's, it's not that big a deal. But what it is a big deal for is that um, apparently the, the hydrogen atoms emit, uh, they have this em emission in kind of the, the end of the UV spectrum. Mm. Um, and a lot of uh, telescopes are kind of baselined on the assumption that, that satellite telescopes, I should say, are baselined on the assumption that there is no atmosphere mm. and no emission in this part of the spectrum so, where they are sitting in space. But yeah. now we yeah. find out that they, there is, so they kind of have to recalibrate yeah, that. That's where all that noise came from. That's right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, so well, quite interesting, but I, I just, just like, like the fact that it's been sitting there for I 20 just, years. Yeah, I just can imagine, oh, quick, we need a summer intern project. What yeah. can they do? Oh, we've got all that, like, you know, data. Data yeah. sitting there. Maybe they could, oh, there won't be anything yeah. there, but, you know, I'll give them something to do. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah, and then they've got a, they've got a paper published. I was never one of your students. <laughs> Yeah, the MSDSs need organising. Go alphabetise those. <laughs> yeah, but don't you? But you do. You, you kind of think that you know yeah, it's yeah. one of those serendipitous things where you where something that you know is uh, actually incredibly valuable. Yeah, so you're sitting. Yeah. In. Well, it's like those museum specimens. There's yeah. so much. So there's, we have so much. Inf uh, we have so much data that we don't actually have enough people to turn it into yeah. information. Well, that's the point, isn't yeah. it? Is that we have so much data from We're drowning. everywhere. We're drowning in we data. Don't have and we a, don't have the the people power to actually. There's no data drought. <laughs> no. That's for sure. And so, you know, sometimes going back and looking at stuff that we haven't looked at or look at it again is actually just as valuable as, yeah. as getting new stuff. And a lot of fun for those interns. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, uh, uh, I have a, I have a, a, a really uh, interesting uh, development for 3D printing. So 3D printing, as most people are probably familiar with it, is that way to print plastic toys layer by layer. Um, but it, it's actually <laughs> amongst for, other things. Amongst other things. But yeah, but can't you like three D print cakes now and icing and like you know? You, you can do three D printed. <laughs> You're food. open. No, I've seen no, like no, you... no. I saw CSI wrote three D printed a gecko made out of beetroot dip, and I was so excited. Yeah, I could just imagine you though on your Facebook profile putting up these pictures of cakes you've made <laughs> and not admitting you three D printed them. <laughs> that one looks like you know a grand cathedral in Paris, I and I made it myself. Yeah, yeah but yeah, you can right. probably tell because you're like, why are there ridges on the side? It looked like it was made layer by layer. Um, so 3D printing is, is also allows us to prototype because you can build almost any shape quickly that you normally would have to work hard on. For example, IKEA 3D prints their silverware and tests it out before they decide to make it. 
Oh, really? Um, but so we can 3D print plastics. But the more interesting part is we can actually 3D print metals. And that's where the, it gets a little bit more technologically complicated. But because you're sintering or basically getting a bunch of powdered metals to bond together layer by layer. And one of the most common ways to do this is with a high-intensity laser. Um, we would have seen for us, you would have remembered when CSIRO didn't make enough dragons, so they 3D printed a dragon. That was out of that process. They were using a laser to make titanium powder stick together layer by layer. That was a very expensive dragon, by the way. Okay. But um, what the challenge is there, how that works is you actually shoot a laser powder, sorry, a, a metal powder with a laser, and you literally melt it. And if you're not careful, if you melt it, it'll start to boil. And when it boils, it makes little vapor pockets that cause faults. And so it's quite difficult to figure out how to minimize those faults. Normally, they have to print a part and go, did it work right? Well, they have to cut it up, slice it up, forensically figure out if they had big vapor pockets or not. And they're called keyholes. But what this group did out of Carnegie Mellon is they used a very... Um, high-speed synchrotron x-ray imaging tool to actually look at 3D printing while it was actually happening. Oh, cool. uh, and so the, same, the tool they're using is similar to the technologies that we have in the Australian synchrotron, which is located in Clayton. And it's a very intense x-ray source, which is great at imaging metals. And they were able to visualize the laser melting the metal and then boiling it and really start to correlate what parameters and settings led to whether or not you had vapor formation. And they found out very quickly that everybody always thought, oh, we only have vapor formation when we see the problem post-mortem in the piece of metal. Mm. Actually, they have vapor formation all the time. And they basically created a new roadmap on how to optimize those 3D printers and run them to try to minimize these effects. And, and why this is a big deal is these are the faults that make 3D printed metal pieces not usable because they create force concentrations and these little inclusions are what concentrates stress and causes them to fail and break. Mm. So, it, it, so especially when you're talking about 3D printing parts for airplanes, airplanes. or cars, you yes. want to make sure that that they, doesn't occur and that you've got a great way of doing quality control such that you you don't end up with those stress faults. Exactly. Mm. And you need, um, that's that thing where you can't just test one, you know, the current version no, of testing one, assuming they're all okay, because that one's okay, is actually quite the opposite of what's happening. And that's, one of, the biggest, and that's one of the biggest challenges for personalized 3D printing is mm. that you, you aren't doing one and you aren't doing a huge batch that's all exactly the same yeah. and you just test one. Yeah. You actually, you know, if you're doing a personalized, customized 3D printed, you know, piece or even, you know, even in some cases like titanium printing mm-hmm. that's been used for surgical parts, you know, that you're implanting, mm. um, you want to make sure that the processes behind that are minimizing any chance exactly. of that. I mean, like for CSIRO and Amerio, who created the 3D-printed titanium heel implant that Peter Chung then put in the Mm. person's heel, there's a lot that goes into trying to make sure that that part is going to withstand or be able to deliver the strength you think it is. For a long time. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music. In the moment, we'll be uh, back on the phone with uh, Dr. Simon Clulo from Macquarie University. We're going to be talking about cane toads. And we may talk about golf clubs. I'm not sure. Those, Cricket bats. Those things usually go together. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Now, hopefully, on the phone, we have Dr. Simon Clulo from Macquarie University. Simon, can you hear us? 
Yes, I can. Thanks so much for chatting to us. Uh, we saw uh, the interesting work uh, that you've been doing recently with regards to cane toads, and I have to say these things just scare me that they're spreading. But in terms of um, the ones you've been looking at, the, the behaviour that they're, they're putting out is quite different to what we've normally expected as the behaviour from cane toads. So can you give us just a bit of a, an overview of you know, when they're normally active and then what's happening with this new group? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, so cane toads, um, like all frogs and toads really, um, with very few exceptions, uh, are normally nocturnal. So certainly where they're from in Central and South America, they're nocturnal. Uh, they've spread to more than 50 countries around the world where they remain nocturnal, as, as most frogs do. Um, but here in, in Australia, uh, quite a surprise to us, uh, while we're out studying the impacts of the cane toad invasion in the Kimberley in Western Australia, we actually found that some populations in some of the, the gorges uh, have actually completely switched their activity times and become diurnal, so resting through the night and out and active and, and feeding through the day. Mm. Now, why why do you think they're, they're doing that? I mean, it seems like quite a, a weird scenario with regards to normal frog behaviour to, to do that. Um, yeah, it is. Um, look, we, we can't be 100% sure. Uh, what we have noticed that this is occurring over a very small spatial scale. Um, so you'll have one gorge that's heavily shaded and they've become diurnal, and then less than seven kilometres away in some instances, we're finding gorges that are more exposed and sunny throughout the day. The toads there are remaining nocturnal like, like they normally do. So we're, we're hypothesising that it's got something to do with these novel habitats that they're moving into, uh, these new, new habitats that they've not experienced before, heavily shaded, so they're quite cool in the day, meaning they probably won't become as dehydrated as, as a frog or toad normally would be out in the day. So we think that's what's enabling it, but we still don't really understand why they're doing it. If there's an advantage, um, and if so, what that advantage is, perhaps there's a more abundant food source, we're not really sure. We need to do more research. D does it make them more of a problem if they're out during the day? Well, we don't really know that either. Um, it might have some benefits for some animals, such as uh, nocturnal quolls. So we know Australian quolls tend to eat cane toads when they arrive in a new area. Cane toads are toxic, so the quolls die, and that can actually lead to localised extinction in some cases at least. Um, uh, the other animals that are getting really hard hit um, are the goannas. Uh, so Various species of goannas do the same thing, eat toads and die. Now, goannas are diurnal feeders, so it perhaps could be worse news for them that the frogs, uh, sorry, that the toads are out more active and more obvious in the day, perhaps better news for the quolls, or perhaps Australian predators are just really good um, at, at, at predating upon uh, toads anyway because they can uh, sniff them out, so maybe it won't make a difference. When we're, we're not really sure at this point, but it could go either way. Uh, Simon, this is Ray. Uh, have any other amphibians done this type of switch before? Are there are there documented examples? I, I know not mammals have, but yes, not 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 that I'm aware of in the amphibians. So th this is a phenomenon known as phase shift. Um, so switching your diurnal um, patterns. It's a very rare phenomenon in nature. We, we know of a couple of examples, like you say, in the mammals. I think um, there's a case in the UK where Norway rats uh, became diurnal in response to foxes beginning to prey upon them um, rather heavily uh, at night time, so they, they switched to become diurnal. There's, there's one or two examples like that. Um, none that I'm aware of in the amphibians. It's, it's an extraordinarily rare phenomenon to change something as fundamental and conspicuous 
uh, as daily activity pattern. I mean, as, as humans, we've probably all experienced what it requires to change your daily activity patterns. Anyone that's been on a plane, flown halfway around the world and suffered jet lag, these are the physiological restraints that, that go with trying to switch night for day. So we know it's not easy, and, and a species, an entire population of a species uh, you know, wouldn't likely do this uh, for no reason. It, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre uh, behaviour to change, but they seem to be quite adaptable and able to do it. Um, hi, Simon. This is Dr. Crystal here. Um, that is quite terrifying to me because if we think about the um, the goal to try to um, el- eliminate or try and um, hold back the cane tone spread, this is this is this a very concerning signal in terms of their their just broad adaptability as a species? Like if they can get in and they can just adapt so fast um, to these localized conditions, what does that say for the strategy in terms of um, trying to actually uh, hold back cane toad spread? I mean, does, that, does this kind of point to them as just this incredibly resilient, adaptable thing that's going to be even more difficult to get rid of than we thought? Yeah, look, it's a great question. And, I, I mean, I guess there's two parts to this. Firstly, from, a, from a, an evolutionary perspective and an invasive species biology perspective, it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, we, we understand that cane toads are probably really good invaders um, for a few life history traits. So we know they're quite generalist. Uh, feeders, they're very fecund, so they'll lay 30,000 eggs at a time, meaning they can um, populate an area quite quickly, and of course they're quite toxic, so they've got good defences. But I think we've really underestimated the role of behaviour in some species' ability to invade, because not every species can be a successful invader, right? Lots of animals from time to time get moved around in shipping crates or something like that. And they'll just simply perish and won't adapt and, and, and survive. But cane toads, of course, are a brilliant invader. So I think we've underestimated the role of behaviour, and it's fascinating from that perspective in terms of uh, species being able to invade. And I think it does potentially pose more challenges for managers. Um, I mean, certainly, at the very least, we now know that perhaps, you know, going out and surveying, and if we need to knock off toads in a localised area for control to protect an important species or habitat, Perhaps it shouldn't all be nocturnal work. Maybe we need to be out surveying in the daytime um, and adjust to this change in behaviour. Um, but, I mean, you know, as much as the toads are the spies, you've got to say they're incredible animals and this is really um, quite an incredible adaptation that, it's, that they're so adaptable um, and so plastic in their behaviour and able to take advantage of novel habitats. Mm. Simon, just before we let you go, can can you sort of remind us of what, what the problem is with the cane toads? Because we, we hear about how bad they are all the time, but it, it's rare that you actually hear about what they're doing, what they're damaging, what, what the issues are associated with them. Yeah, that's true, and I think it's important to understand. Um, unfortunately, uh, I mean, cane toads shouldn't be here in Australia, and I wish they weren't. Um, but I, I do also worry about just how maligned and, and uh, you know hated they are, because obviously people tend to think they're not very attractive and so forth, and so they are tended to be treated uh, rather harshly and sometimes inhumanely. So I would encourage anyone out there listening that, that does like to control toads and their property, you know, there are there are humane ways to knock them off. They do that. Um, uh, they, um, um, yeah, did it, and, and what what damage do they cause, Simon? Sorry, yeah, just yeah. Uh, so the, the major 
form of damage is actually not not predating upon things or eating too many insects or competing with other frogs. Uh, the major damage actually comes through them poisoning topwater predators, and there are there are only really some that get massively hammered. So we know, like I said before, nocturnal quolls and the diurnal goannas. Um, these are topwater predators in the Australian system, particularly reptilian predators. So there are some snakes, um, a few species of goanna. Even crocodiles can succumb to lethal toxic ingestion um, through cane toads, but we do know that it looks like cane toad at the po- uh, sorry crocodiles at the population level don't suffer. So it is po- important to understand the difference between individual deaths of a species and population declines. It's the population declines that matter mm. um, in biology. The odd death doesn't matter so much because lots of things end up. Uh, killing killing individuals, um, they die from diseases and all sorts of things naturally. But we do know quolls suffer immensely, goannas suffer immensely, and we do also know that there's knock-on effects through the ecosystem. So trophic uh, cascades is, is an event where if you lose top-order predators that are yeah. exerting um, influence over their ecosystem via top-down regulation, we've seen this in the Kimberley through our research. We lose top-order uh, goannas and things like weed-eating turtles and seed-eating birds um, and frog-eating snakes can be um, completely affected. So mm. Some mesa predators will increase in numbers, um, other things will decrease, but it does throw the ecosystem into the whack. Yeah. Simon, look, thanks. we're going to have to run, but thanks so much for chatting to us about this. Good luck with the ongoing work and keeping on top of those cane toads, and, and it looks like uh, we're going to have to change our strategy for observing them, counting them, and you know, keeping, keeping them in check in the future. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Dr. Simon Clue Lewis, Macquarie University, and uh, it certainly is a little scary that they're running around in the daytime now. I thought they were fixated on the night, but uh, they're not that ugly. Oh, they're pretty ugly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Depends what your definition of beauty yeah. is. I and suppose. and a good a good point there, you know, from Simon is there are ways to deal with That's them right. humanely, absolutely. other than with a three iron. Yes. So um, don't do that, people. We're going to take a break for some important uh, important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a moment with uh, a guest from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute talking about some really interesting research that's just come out over the last week. Three triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Shailen Nake. He's from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Better known as Weehoy. Welcome to the studio again. Thanks very much, few, Dr. Shane. It's been a few years, but it you're has back. been, yeah. Now, uh, you, you guys have put out some amazing research this week, which I, I have to say, when I, when I read this, because um, you know, really, really just blew me away because we've had so many guests over the years talking about how cancer spreads and, more importantly, how cancer comes back. And those two things together being, you know, the I guess the, the double whammy for, for patients. And your work sort of looks at, at some of that. So, first of all, I, I want to just, and, and particularly you're, you're looking at breast cancer, but in terms of general cancers, why do cancers kill us? I mean, you know, you get this tumour, what's, what's going on? Why do they kill us? Well, first thing to say is, as John Laws used to say about oils not being oils, mm. uh, cancer ain't cancer. Right. Um, and there's so many different cancers. And there's then what you call, even within the one cancer, like breast cancer, which is what we studied, there's interpatient heterogeneity. Um, but even within the one patient, there's intertumoral heterogeneity. Mm, right. So most cancers come from one cell. So one cell divides a little bit and gets a mutation and gets some sort of this and that, and it divides and divides and it goes rogue. So it doesn't follow the normal rules of mm-hmm. staying uh, as, as it should. 
And along that process, you get lots of different variants. So cancer becomes highly heterogeneous. It's like those whack-a-moles where you can try and whack one with one therapy, but then it can, another one can jump out and do something else. So that's what we were trying to understand with this particular question. Right. So, so, many, so what you're saying is there are many different cell types there or types of cells within the wad of cancer yeah. itself. So it's not one type. That's and right. so you may have a therapy that knocks out one part of it but the rest is good to go that's right so you get all these variants everyone it's just mutating and changing all the time it's hard to really keep track of it and the thing going back to your first question why does cancer kill well often at least and and this is what we're studying this particular kind of breast cancer is it's not the breast cancer itself it's when it spreads when Mm -hmm. it goes through the bloodstream and the lymphatics and it goes to the bone and the brain that's when it can cause the real issues but we still don't fully understand why why would a cell leave the the nest so Mm, to speak and mm. go and what gives it the ability to grow in a tissue it normally shouldn't right and and this is this term metastasis which many people have probably heard but there there must be a point i mean i know when people have testing done for cancer there's a point where it metastasizes yes i mean do we have an understanding of why that occurs at a certain time or a certain point i mean is it a certain size or it you know, do some cancers metastasize quicker than others? Yes, that's right. And and the answer is yes to all of your questions. There's lots of variations. Um, we do understand a lot about why cancer spreads, and that's been uh, the you know the source for particular therapies. But mm. we don't fully understand why, and we don't yet have good therapies. For example, triple negative breast cancer is what we studied. Why does it spread? When does it spread during the tumour growth? And how might we be able to target Mm. that? Mm. So what we did was take a different approach. We used this technology that I developed called cellular barcoding. And I developed that in uh, Amsterdam back in 2013 with uh, Professor Schumacher. And there we put in little DNA barcodes inside the cell so we can tag and track them. It's kind of like tracking a FedEx package. Mm-hmm. You know, you put a barcode on there and you know where it's ended up. So we did that with all of these cell variants from an actual patient who kindly donated their material to medical research. And we grew a primary tumour in animal models. And then we asked, when the cancer spreads, was it all of those variants or was it some mm-hmm. of them? And to our surprise, it was only a few of them. And there were often these really kind of rare uh, variants, these needles in the haystack. Um, and that was that kind of blew our mind because when you sample a bit of cancer or when you take a bit of blood, you might be looking at the wrong thing. Right. Yeah. You might be looking at something that's sending out shed, its shed cells into the bloodstream, but the ones that are the deadly bits, you might be missing altogether. And we this technology allowed us to find them. In, in terms of the numbers, you know, when you said you tagged them all, how many different ones are involved? I'm trying to get a figure here yes. in terms of you know average breast cancer. I mean, we're talking about 100 different types or 50,000? That's a really interesting question, and it's a little bit how long's a piece of string mm. question because you've got very... Uh, gross variants and then you've got all these little micro variants as well and we call them clones and subclones in in technical terms um so in our model we were tracking thousands and thousands of variants and then we pinpointed just down to sometimes one or three or five actually went and spread and and you know did the Mm. damage so to speak yeah so when you were tracking them did you find that those little the the particular ones that were the needles in the haystack were they the ones that were like the gross variants or that they could be just the little subclones i yeah. think you called them yeah it was a really tiny little subclones yeah. sometimes numbering dozens of cells amongst billions how would you ever know to look for them yeah right and the barcoding allows us to in retrospect know what they look like but if you're a patient how are you you know how are you clinically going to find that 
And I guess, you know, if you wanted to then ask the question, what's the ultimate aim of this research? Is there then ways of once you identify these potentially rare but but quite deadly populations that are able to, to leave and seed to develop new therapies specifically, you know, that can target or prevent those cells? Yeah, absolutely. So that is exactly what we want to do next. Now that we know what variants are the ones that cause it, we've now got these really cool tools like single-cell RNA sequencing, which is this revolution in biology. Now we can link the clones that spread to their molecular nature and say, why are they different? And could we target that with a drug? So that's absolutely our next step, and we're really excited. The, the spreading was one thing, but there's also the element that we discussed at the start of the particular types of cells being resistant to treatments and sort of hiding from those treatments and yeah. then later, you know, the person ends up with cancer again. Yes. How does, how does the barcoding help us there or, or right. is it separate? So we also tested that when, uh, when a patient gets chemo, the tumours shrink and then they mm. can come back. And we thought like with these cancers that metastasize, it might just be a couple of them out of the thousands. But this was the next surprise. Right. We found that of all of the variants we studied, they all shrank to a point of not detection, and then they all bounced back. Well, that's not so good. No, it's, it, it, really, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it really was something to really think about going forward is while we think of some treatments might, you know, in a Darwinian point of view, select for things, you are getting selection maybe within that family of variants, but mm. all of the variants were sort of equally capable of bouncing back. I mean, with all this information, one of the things that I've noticed over the last sort of maybe 10, 15 years is the interest in using our own immune system to fight cancer, yes. and, you know, actually gearing it up to do the job that, that, frankly, it does every other day of the year yes. and gets it right, but then at some point it starts failing and we end up with a with a tumour or we end up with cancer. And because my understanding is it does clear cancers from our body all the time, like it does that every day of our lives, but then it gets to a point where it fails. When, when you uncover this sort of information with so much complexity and you see the adaptability and, as you say, you know, all of them manage to shrink and hide, does that sort of steer us in the direction of, you know, some of our pharmaceutical sort of attempts here are probably not going to be the ultimate answer for cancer but we're going to need the complexity and skill of our immune systems to really do the job is it is that yeah so i think it's a little bit of a case of both for some cancers the immune system is very important like melanoma mm -hmm. like some lung cancers and actually increasingly in breast cancer so um you know jeff lindemann and jane visveda who we did this research with um are trying some of that in breast cancer patients to see whether it works but there's other cancers where the immune system is not really that involved mm, okay so Again, oils ain't oils, cancer ain't yep. cancer, and therapies won't be therapies. Um, we'll increasingly, not just between cancers, try different approaches, immune system and pharmacological, um, but maybe depending on the patient as well. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, you've, you've got to tell us how you do this barcoding. Like, how do you, I mean, Dr. Crystal was talking about some modifications to DNA earlier in the show, but how do, yeah. how do you modify some DNA so that you can... I mean, what exactly are you modifying? Like, how yeah. do you do that? Is it is it molecule by molecule or is it... Yeah. So we uh, actually, we just order a library from a company of DNA barcodes. I'm disappointed. You press a button. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that... No, but then it, gets, then it gets interesting. So we order the library, but then we put it into a virus, which is sort of like HIV, but we knocked out all the bits that make it dangerous. Right. And we put it in that virus, and then we infect cells with the virus, and they are the Trojan horse that delivers the barcode into the DNA. Wow. And then it stays there. And it's rep when the DNA replicates in the cell, the barcode comes along with it. Mm. And how do you 
reader at the other end? What's the bulk so of reader? So we use um, uh, uh, genetic techniques called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, and DNA sequencing to understand what the code is of the different cancer cells we took out. Oh, so the same way you normally read yes, DNA. Yes, that's there's correct. There's nothing special required there. That's nothing. Oh, sorry to disappoint. Nothing too special. <laughs> well, no, that's great news, though. That's great news. It means it's, you know, it's, it's readily that's right. usable that's in, right. in any lab. Yeah, yeah, and so we're applying this technology to questions of stem cells and cancers and really trying to get that heterogeneity. What makes each cell different? Yeah. I guess it just opens up that ability to study any rare cell population because those barcodes are yeah. essentially permanent. That's it. Yeah. That's it. They're permanent and they, they allow us to have, a, in effect, a more powerful microscope to understand the biology yeah. in, a, in a way we haven't before. Look, it's a brilliant work, Sean. Thanks so much for coming and chatting to us. And um, you know, we, We've seen so much great stuff coming out of, out of the Walter Eliza Hall Institute this year and um, you know, it's only February, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep, keep it up. Great That's stuff. It. And a shout-out to Delphi Marino who really led the charge from the cancer perspective on this one. Fantastic. Dr. Shalyn Naik from the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, thanks for being our guest on Triple R. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements and we're going to come back and we're going to talk to a geologist about uh, really, 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 really old rocks. Free Triple R. Uh, you are listening to Triple R. This is a science show, folks, so if you've accidentally tuned in, uh, you may learn something. <laughs> Dr. Ailey's got an important announcement before we go to our next guest, though. I do. I just wanted to say uh, vale to Professor Wally Broker, who died earlier this week. And, and Wally was um, just a huge influence on climate change science over the last 30 years. He worked as a professor at Columbia University in New York at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. And Wally was basically the guy that... Uh, coined the term global warming. So oh, wow. in 1975, yeah. he published um, a paper in Science that said, climate change, are we on the brink of pronounced global warming? And that mm. was kind of one of the first papers that really kicked it off in the in the public's mind anyway. Yeah. So he died last Monday and he, he gave a lot of valuable contributions to the science, in, including looking... Um, he was a geophysicist, actually, so he was looking mm. at kind of deep time and looking at, um, you know, ideas of abrupt climate change and sudden changes in climate due to ocean circulations and things like that. So very sad to hear of his yeah. passing, but he, he made amazing contributions. Yep. So Vale Wally. Indeed. Thank you, Dr. Ailey. In the studio with us now is Dr. Ashley Wainwright. She's a senior technical officer in the Isotopia Laboratory in the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Ashley, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me, Shane. Now, I've got to ask, Isotopia, it is either a place or a font. What does that, what does that <laughs> name mean? <laughs> That's a good question. They came up with it before I arrived yeah. at the lab. So <laughs> I, I would assume it's a place. It's a place? It's a place where isotopes are wonderful and amazing. Oh, right. It's I a utopian them. existence exactly. for isotopes. isotopes. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a utopia, but all the molecules are about the same size, but slightly different. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, they'll, and, they'll look the same on the outside. Yeah. From our yeah. perspective, they do not look the same. So yeah. they're oh, all yeah. different sizes and masses. Oh, very cool. Now, uh, we it was interesting. I was at the museum yesterday, and uh, I walked through the geology section. And, yeah, it's fantastic. They're great rocks. But as you walk in, there's, there's all these old, old um, globes that you can push a button, they turn around, it's really cool stuff. But one of them said, you know, what the Earth looked like at 4.4 billion years ago. And I thought of you because I thought, <laughs> we're going to talk about rocks from that period. And, and I looked at it and it was all sort of molten looking. I think I'm not sure, you know, what the rocks look like. But um, you work on zircons that are really bloody old. Yes. Now, first of all, um, before we get into the dating, because I want to talk about that a little bit, how you do that. Why zircons? What, what's I mean? What are zircons? What's 
interesting about them and why do you go after these particular rocks? Uh, so they're basically just a mineral. Uh, it's cubic zirconia to most people, yep. uh, so fake diamonds, basically. Uh, but the reason we look at these rocks is they're super... Well, these minerals, they're not rocks. They're super resilient. Um, they take a long time to break down. What's the difference between a mineral and a rock? Well, a rock is made up of minerals. Oh, okay. Whereas a mineral is just, just a single stuff. little constituent of a rock. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've, so. been, I've been really offensive to so many... <laughs> So many rocks over the well, years. Even we can be educated. Ma- miners call them ores and minerals. The ore is the rock, and then they try to get the mineral out of the ore. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No problem. Yep. Um, yeah. So zircons are just super resilient. They take a long time to break down. Um, they're formed in a melt in a magma, so they grow. Um, and then, if that rock that forms from that magma is then buried by subduction or you know, more rocks come on top of it, they continue to grow. So they end up with these zones, like tree rings, and we can date the different zones of the different parts of the zircon if it grows big enough. Hmm. And are there other rocks like zircons that have been around for as long, or are they, are they quite unique in that, that sense? The zircons are unique in that they're the only thing we have that we can definitively say is over 4 billion years old. Yeah, wow. We have some rocks on Earth that there is some controversy over as to whether they're 4 billion years old or not, but they're at least 38 billion years old whereas mm. the zircons are the only thing we have left of the very early earth everything else yeah. has been destroyed yeah. so diamonds don't last nearly as long no we have some older diamonds but it's actually really hard to date a diamond you're actually dating the inclusion that's within okay. the diamond mm. and then there's controversy as to well what are you actually dating okay it's mm. fascinating stuff now let's talk a bit about the the dating because you use uranium lead dating i assume it's, yes yeah now a lot of our listeners will have heard of carbon dating many yes. times, and, and I've explained carbon dating more, more times than there are carbon atoms, I think, <laughs> over, the, over the 27 years I've been doing this show. But uranium dating is interesting because it goes a lot further back. So ex- explain how it works. Uh, so what we're looking at, the great thing about the uranium series is that there are three different isotopic systems that decay into three different lead elements. So you have 238 uranium, 235 uranium, and then 232 thorium. So they, they're three different systems that have three different rates of decay. Mm-hmm. So because they have different half-lives with different lengths of time, we can actually use the series to look at things that are 4 billion years old, but we can also look at things that are 100 million years old mm. by using those different isotopes in different combinations. Because mm. a, a lot of people don't realise that the carbon dating gets you to about, what, 35,000 years or something? Yeah. Is that right? And yeah. So this, which is... In geological terms, who cares? Exactly. Right? I mean, it's really, yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, it's great. If you're great, you're looking at the pyramids and you yeah. want to, but, but if you want to look at geology, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Carbon-14 is only really good for human history. Yeah. Um, it's not even good for looking at the dinosaurs, for instance. If you want to look at the dinosaurs, you need something different like rubidium strontium or lutetium hafnium or uranium lead. Yeah. And these things take, take that long to decay. And, yes. And then we've got enough of it left to, to measure, basically. Exactly. In these tiny little zircon yeah. minerals yeah so yeah. we're talking millimeter <laughs> millimeter size minerals yeah and um well so we i use a laser um it makes a spot of 30 microns so that's 0.003 of a millimeter yep about half the size of a human hair exactly wait, wait i have a question before that so the, the zircon's the mineral but the mineral isn't on your own first you get a rock yes. how do you get I, I know how minerals processing works. How do you get how do you get a mineral out of a rock? Because normally it involves a lot of crushing and grinding if it you're does. mining. It does. Uh, so the oldest zircons on Earth are actually from Western Australia. Uh, they're in the Jack Hills, which is a sedimentary sequence that's actually only I think it's two point something billion years old, but it has these four billion year old zircons in it. So you take a 
probably 10, 20, 30 kilo chunk of this rock and you crush it down um, until you get, you know, smaller than millimeter sizes and then you sieve it into different mm. fractions and then you do something called heavy liquid se- separation. So zircons are dense in certain liquids and they'll, so they'll be denser than others. So you put them in a heavy liquid and they'll fall to the bottom and everything else will float. Mm. And so you take that bit out, you dry it, and then you look at it under a microscope and make sure you only pick out the zircons. So at some point it's a microscope and a tweezers. Yes. Mm. And what, a very wow. poor student who's been yeah. sitting there for hours uh, wasting away their life. Yeah, we've been talking about that earlier on the show. They uh, didn't work for Crystal? Recruit the bike. So once you've got the zircons, you, you then, I mean, you have to work out what's in them so have, or what they're made of. How, how do you go about that? Uh, so that's where I come in. That's mm. where my technical skills as a laser technician come in. So they give them to me. They've they've stuck them basically in some epoxy, uh, and then we grind them down so we have a nice flat surface, and we put them in the laser ablation system. And we do this state of the art technique at Monash University where we ablate a spot um, on the zircon, and then we we use a gas to take away the aerosol that is created by the laser because the laser is quite. Uh, high temperature mm-hmm. uh, so that takes it you know it ablates a part of the zircon and then goes into this gas stream and then most people would just push that into one instrument to measure it on a mass spectrometer and we actually split it between two different mass spectrometers so that we can get the age data but we can also get some some data from something called hafnium isotopes that can tell us a little bit about the mantle and the magma that these minerals were formed in mm. initially. So what have we learned from looking at these zircons about the Earth? Depends I mean, cause, who you talk to. Because I've got a book at home that uh, talks about the apple shrinking model of the Earth, which I think is wrong. But, um, what, I mean, what do the zircons tell us? Well, it tells us that the Earth formed very quickly to begin okay. with and that it probably cooled a little quicker. So that globe that you saw at the museum mm. is probably not quite correct. Oh, damn it. Um, it probably wasn't <laughs> a big molten ball. Yeah. Um, but it is highly controversial as to whether we had water at that point in time. We may right. have already had surface water, and that's one of the many things that these zircons can help us to f- find out. Yeah. And, and what's, what's sort of next in the big zircon spectroscopy world? I mean, what, what, what do you hope to find? If you, uh, you know, I assume there's, there's one zircon out there somewhere in Australia that if someone grabs it and looks at it the right way, it's going to give us a whole lot. Exactly. So it's just the techniques have gotten to the point now where we can before we were having to do all of these things separately so you never knew whether you were looking at the same zoning like when i talked about earlier how you had these tree ring type zones you never knew that you were looking at the same zone for the different analyses that you were doing so this split stream technique we're going to hopefully be able to do it with a triple stream where we go to three different instruments and then get three different sets of data all from one zone in the zircon and then we can categorically say that these three things are related and they're all related to this date so we know that at this date say it's 4.3 or 4.1, we had this type of isotopic composition and this kind of chemistry occurring. And then that can tell us about how the, the mantle was and what kind of crust we had and how thick that crust was or how extensive that crust was or how felsic or mafic that crust was. Hmm. Now, uh, just before you go, the uh, the location here in Australia, is it, is it unique? I mean, there, there are it other is. locations, so there's no other... I mean, so, you know, we keep selling the bloody Sydney Harbour Bridge. We should be selling the fact we've got these zircons. <laughs> Oldest the rocks in the of, world. In the middle of nowhere out in Western Australia, so it's probably not greatly accessible for a tourist, but they are out there. I, I always wonder why some geologists at some point went there and had a look, like... 
It's a big country. (laughs) And these are little rocks. (laughs) Like someone at some stage, there must be something about the morphology in that there that said, this is a place to look. This is a great place to go. Exactly. I think most of it actually comes from mining. People are out there exploring for mines and then they see something else that looks interesting and they send it to us real scientists and we get to the bottom of it. Very cool. Dr. Ashley Wainwright, thanks so much for coming and talking to us uh, Triple R. It's great to hear more about geology. We don't have enough geology on the show. No, we need more. We need more. more If you're out there and you're a geologist... Send me a Twitter thing, you know, I'll get you on. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Ashley Wainwright is a senior technical officer in the Isotopia Laboratory. I just want to work there. It sounds like a great place. And it's not a font. School of Earth and Atmosphere and uh, Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Now, we're going to have to hand over in a minute to the team from AAA because they're down there at the Ceres Environmental Park. And I suspect uh, if I know Cam, he's already got the tweezers in hand and, you know, ready to go although he won't actually cook the barbecue that's the thing he'll claim it but he won't be the one cooking it he'll be there providing entertainment isn't it the brunswick elementary school grillers they yeah. probably will, will yeah will they're the ones cooking it kick them back yeah yeah i mean cam's a great he's a chef yeah. so you know he, he knows what he's doing but um barbecues yeah. he'll critique the barbecue i'm sure he will <laughs> he's great uh dr ailey thanks so much for, for coming in good to see you again this is the first thanks, time dr. i've seen Tang- you yeah yeah, yeah 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 it's been a little while yep. and dr ray first time for the year yes it was still, fun thank yeah, you yeah it was very good um folks i'm dr shane crystal had to run out early she uh, i think she wanted to get the first snags off yep. the barbie yeah. i'm not sure but anyway uh, we will be chatting science to you again next week. Thanks so much for listening to Triple R. Thanks again. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again with more science next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.